Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 9 through 20 in a few moments. And I think we'll just read it as we get to the verses because we're going through verses 9 through 20. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer together. Father, thank you, God, for the privilege of proclaiming your word, of hearing your word. May it be proclaimed in faithfulness and in truth, and may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Not only had God promised to scatter Judah, the kingdom of Judah, because they had disregarded the old covenant, the law. But he also promised that one day he would return them to the land of Israel. After 70 years of exile, they would return to the land. God made that promise. That's exactly what happened in 537 B.C. when Cyrus sent Zerubbabel with 20,000 men and their families back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild. Ezra had also led a return in 558 B.C. with 1,800 men and their families. Then here in the book of Nehemiah, we have learned about Nehemiah getting word from his brother Hanani that the walls and the gates were still destroyed and Jerusalem lay in waste. After four months with this burden, after praying and fasting, he on one occasion, as we saw last week, was serving wine to King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah on that occasion was given the opportunity to share this burden that God had given him with the king. The king consented. Nehemiah requested letters for safe passage and supplies. And both were granted by the king. And then we come to Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 9. And I want you to notice first that Nehemiah was not afraid to use, use earthly resources to accomplish the task God had given him. Look at Nehemiah 2 verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. This military escort that Nehemiah had here not only was for protection, but think about it. They were also a statement of the king's authority as he traveled and as he got back to the land. I want you to notice the slide and, and see that Persian empire. I think that's next, if you can see it. It's smaller than I expected. But anyway, you can see, hopefully you can see that they came from Babylon, actually from uh, Susa, S-U-S-A, which was just, I think, southwest of Babylon, uh, just a little ways over the uh, Tigris River. But that's where they were coming from. And he was heading back and going through Qadar, going through the land of Qadar, uh, almost like a tributary of the Persian Empire. Now, he went back with all these resources. He went back with this army, so to speak. He went back with the king's letters. He went back with information to allow him to, to actually get wood for the building of the gates. But it's interesting, as we uh, 
look at the book of Ezra, Ezra did not ask King Cyrus for soldiers or horsemen. He did not seek provisions from the king. Nehemiah was offered these provisions by King Artaxerxes, and he accepted them. Both men acted in faith, yet the circumstances and God's leading were different. And we see that sometimes in Scripture. In Luke 9, the disciples were instructed to take clothes that were on their backs. And God provided. They lacked nothing. But in Luke chapter 22, as Jesus approached the cross, he told them to take extra provisions with them. In both cases, the disciples acted in faith. So there's a time to depend totally upon the Lord to provide. And there's a time to go into ministry prepared, to prepare ahead of time. A godly leader seeks the Lord to know when to prepare and when to totally trust God to provide. For Nehemiah, God was using him and he was preparing for the task. He used the king's authority and the king's resources to accomplish the task. It provided safety, safety of passage. Even when we prepare, though, we must trust God to accomplish the task. Listen to the words of the proverb. Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. See, we don't trust. Even though we might use resources, we don't trust in those things. We know that God is the one that gives the victory. God is the one that accomplishes the is, accomplishes the task, yet he has chosen us, chosen to use us, our planning sometimes, and our preparation as a part of the strategy to win the victory. That's what Nehemiah was doing. He believed God's promise to restore Israel, and he wanted to serve God, his king. So a leader, a godly leader, sees no conflict between his responsibility, worldly provisions, and God's sovereignty. And he knows when it's appropriate to use them and when it's appropriate not to, and totally to trust the Lord. Notice, secondly, Nehemiah faced the devil's opposition. Look at verse 10. When uh, uh, Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. They were not happy. They were adversaries to the nation of Israel, to the kingdom of Judah. Now, there's a papyra from 407 BC that comes about 38 years later that refers to Sanballat, the Horonite. Yeah, thank you. As an inhabitant of Beth Horon. Now, that's an area that in those days was about 10 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And in this document, he's also referred to as the governor of Syria. So this was a prominent man. Tobiah the Ammonite came from the area that has the capital, uh, 
Rabath Amon, today Amon Jordan. He was the king's servant, the Bible says. He was serving in a high ranking, uh, as a high ranking official. So he was a prominent man as well. When you look down at verse 19, it identifies another adversary, Gisham, the Arab. A 5th century inscription from Egypt refers to him as the king of Kardar. Now, that's the area west of Jerusalem. And that particular group was one of the primary Arab groups at this time. They had great influence from Arabia all the way to Judah. So it appears that they were almost like surrounded by adversaries. But this did not stop Nehemiah, did it? He was trusting in Yahweh, the eternal, unchanging, independent, perfect I am, the eternal, self-existing one. But if we are going to serve the Lord, we must expect opposition, adversaries. It's a part of it. Paul wrote to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's what we should expect as believers when we seek to live godly, when we seek to serve the Lord. We will be, in some form or fashion, we will be persecuted. But we must always remember that our battle is not with people. You know, it's very easy to see people that are fighting against us as the primary problem. The unsaved, these adversaries are merely willing instruments controlled by evil entities. Paul told the church at Ephesus, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That's where the battle lies. It's not with people per se, but it's with evil entities. Notice thirdly, Nehemiah got his plans from the Lord, from his word. And we've already talked about this in days gone by, Sundays gone by. In verse 12, in the middle of the verse, he says, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. Nehemiah was not pursuing his own plans. He was pursuing God's plans. God is the one that put it into his heart. Proverbs 19.21 tells us, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. The plans of men are based on limited understanding. The plans of men are self-willed and self-promoting. The plans of men are temporary and never satisfying. But the counsel of the Lord will stand. That's what we need to be seeking. God's will, God's plan, God's decree. By faith, we must be working to accomplish God's purpose, not our own. But how can we know God's counsel if we do not know his will? John quoted Joshua's words last week. Joshua 1a. Look at it again. 
but this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. I have not commanded you be strong and courageous. Excuse, yeah, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So we must know God's word. We must meditate on God's word, believing God's word, and living God's word. Living it out. Becoming a part of God's plan and God's purpose. King David wrote, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. That's when our steps are established established by the Lord. Notice fourthly, Nehemiah carefully inspected the wall and gates of the city. Look at verse 11 through 15 all together now. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my heart or into my mind, excuse me, to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuge gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall, and I entered the valley gate again and returned. So there's a slide now of that ancient city as it existed in that day on that, that mount, so to speak, that went up to the temple there. A lot of people see the old walls today, and that's not the old Jerusalem of Nehemiah's day that extended out to the west there it came right down that ridge of that hill uh down to almost the valley of hinnon which existed there on the left and south side not the old city of today but actually a smaller section that was jerusalem in nehemiah's day and prior to the time of nehemiah Back to the time of David, of course. During the months after his brother, Hanani, brought him the bad news concerning Jerusalem, it was obvious that Nehemiah knew what needed to be done. But he did not know the details. He did not know how much rebuilding had to be done or exactly how many materials had to be acquired to accomplish this mammoth project. This was huge. This required a thorough investi investigation and inspection of the wall and gates. This is what Nehemiah was doing here. This is precisely what he's doing. He is inspecting the city wall and gates to see exactly what was required. And this is a job of every godly leader to assure protection of those entrusted to that leader. It's the same thing in the church. The position of elder is also referred to as an overseer. 
a spiritual overseer. Episcope means inspection or implies a guarding. It's the same principle. Just as Nehemiah inspected the wall and gates, a godly leader must inspect the protections of the people entrusted to them. The shepherd of the sheep would build a sheepfold out of rocks or materials to make an enclosure in the Lord's day, leaving a doorway for the sheep to go in and out. And the shepherd would lead them into that sheepfold at night in the evening so they could be protected at night. And that good shepherd would sit in the doorway, see a wolf or a bear or any predator, could not get to the sheep without coming through the shepherd. That's where he slept to protect them. That building of those walls. and that That's the context in which Jesus said, I am the door. I am the door. Elders are to be shepherds of the flock. To protect the flock from wolves. Even wolves in sheep's clothing. To protect them from and warn them of false teachers. This is the responsibility of every elder, but it's also the responsibility of every father and husband in the home to protect that household, those that God has entrusted them with. Notice fifthly, Nehemiah did not reveal the plans until he formulates them in his mind. Verse 16 the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. The purpose of gated cities was a means of providing access to the city while maintaining security. They filled functions relating to defense, first and foremost, security, health, trade, taxation, and representation. God's kingdom cannot be sustained or fulfilled. It cannot fulfill its God-given purpose unless his kingdom is secure. Nehemiah's responsibility was to carefully inspect the wall and the gates to provide the security that these people needed. Derek Kidner writes in his commentary on Nehemiah, Nehemiah, as ever, is a model of good sense, piety, and attention to detail. For all his speed and drive, he does not rush into action or into talk. He anticipates the obvious objection that a newcomer can have no idea of the task. So he briefs himself thoroughly and chooses his moment to show his hand he has not only kept his plans from the enemy, he has kept the initiative, vis-a-vis, the leaders whom he must convince and arouse. He would have lost this if he had been exposing half-formed ideas piecemeal to every acquaintance. And then he writes, above and beyond his sound tactics, however, was the conviction that basically the project was not his. It was from God and for Jerusalem, not from Nehemiah, nor for his prestige. He planned carefully 
He was intentional. He did not reveal the details until he knew exactly what must be done. Notice sixthly, Nehemiah rallied God's people to accomplish the task God had given. Verse 17 and 18, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we're in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and about and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. You know, a godly leader does not attempt to do God's work alone. He seeks men and women and sometimes boys and girls to join in the work. It will always be those who have hearts for God that will respond. Those who know and believe God's promises and want to be involved in living out those promises and seeing them fulfilled. Nehemiah, excuse me, Nehemiah brought the desolate situation before the people. He told them how God had worked in bringing him back to Jerusalem with the king's blessing. See, God's hand was upon him. God's people then responded. And much of the walls were rebuilt by people repairing the wall opposite their own house. That's significant. As we're going to see in the coming chapters, especially the next chapter, they were responsible for the section of wall adjacent to them, not for any other part of the wall. Sometimes families being responsible. They accomplished the work in 52 days. A mammoth task, a huge task. It was accomplished in 52 days. God had given them a responsibility. And under the leadership of Nehemiah, people responded to God's vision, to what God wanted to accomplish to the security of the Jerusalem, protection from their adversaries. The elder has been given the responsibility for the local body, as we've already talked about. And God has given fathers the responsibility of their household. I wonder what would happen if each of us, as the head of our household, would take the responsibility seriously to lead our homes if we just did it for 52 days. What would happen? Pouring our lives into our wives and children, diligently teaching them the word of God, building a spiritual wall around them. What would happen? What would happen if we did that for the rest of our lives with all of our hearts all of our soul and all of our strength serving God because God has called us to the task. Notice, lastly, Nehemiah trusted God to accomplish the work even in the face of opposition. Verse 19, but when uh, Sanballat the Horonite 
and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Aram heard it. They mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I mean, they had the king's letter. They had the king's, at least in part, his army. Notice what Nehemiah said. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. You see where his faith was? The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. The God of heaven will give us success. While God had called Nehemiah to lead the people to rebuild the walls, he knew that their success could not be hindered by the adversaries. And he would not let them have a part. He also knew his success did not depend on his own abilities, nor the abilities of the people. He knew the God of heaven would give success. He knew the walls would be rebuilt. And how did they respond to Nehemiah? How did they respond to the vision that God had given Nehemiah? We, his servants, will arise and build. God wasn't going to use wolves or wolves in sheep's clothing like these adversaries. Neither can we in the church allow the unconverted into the assembly for the purpose of building a church, for the purpose of numbers. We must not, we cannot, for the sake of numbers, try to bring everybody we can into the church that are unconverted. Yes, we want people in our church. Yes, we want to see God doing work in people's lives. But they must be the converted. Those who are born from above that are a part of the fellowship that must work to serve God. So in conclusion, a godly leader works to protect those entrusted to him. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. It's godly leaders in homes that become godly leaders in the church. That's a biblical principle. It's unavoidable. It's godly leaders in homes that become godly leaders in the church because leadership begins at home. Godly leadership is intentional, purposeful, committed, and disciplined. The proverb says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Before the children of Israel entered the promised land, they were given detailed instructions concerning their families. Deuteronomy chapter 6. God knew that in the promised land, their children would be influenced by surrounding pagan nations. And so, amazing instructions were given. Listen to the words. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandments, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you 
all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Sadly, those fathers did not love the Lord with all their hearts, and they did not teach their children. The first generation of Israelites that entered the promised land rebelled against God. The children grew up and followed after pagan gods. They walked away from the true God. They did not listen. Ministry begins at home. Always. And it should stem from the head of the home, the husband, the father. However, you cannot be a godly leader if you've not been born from above. If self is still on the throne of your life, you will be promoting your own self-serving agenda in your home. Christ must be the, on the throne of your life. Many people claim today, Christ is my savior. But the question is this, is Christ your Lord? If he is not your Lord, he is not your Savior. We must trust him, all of who he is. He is both Savior and Lord. We can't divide him up. Acts chapter 16, verse 31, Paul and Silas said, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Lord Jesus. Lord is in the emphatic position. That's the emphasis. Yes, he's Savior. He's Jesus. Yeshua. His name means God saves. He bore our sins on Calvary's cross. It was a proprietary sacrifice. It was satisfying. It's the mercy seat, so to speak. His sacrifice took away sin forever. It's substitutionary for everyone that would ever believe. But he is also Lord. He's the supreme master. He's the creator. And every knee will bow before him. The Apostle Paul in both Romans 14 and Philemon chapter 2 quotes from Isaiah 45, 23, 22 and 23. Listen to Isaiah's words. Turn to me and be saved, 
all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow and every tongue confess allegiance. Every tongue will swear allegiance. The Bible describes the converted like this. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turn. Speaking of believers, speaking of those in the church, you turn to God from idols to serve. That's the word doulos, the word slave. A.W. Pink writes this, conversion, true conversion, saving conversion is a turning from sin to God in Christ. It is a throwing down of the weapons of my warfare against him, a ceasing to despise and ignore his authority. The New Testament conversion is described thus, ye turn to God from idols to serve, to be in subjection to, to obey the living and true God. He goes on to write, conversion is a right about face. The heart and will repudiate sin, self, and the world. Genuine conversion is always evidenced by, Lord, what will thou have me to do? It is an unreserved surrender of ourselves to his holy will. Salvation is more than praying a prayer. It is through faith in the Lord Jesus that we are saved. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Some have claimed that discipleship is some secondary act of salvation. But all you have to do is continue reading in Matthew chapter 16. After saying, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He writes, or he says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? We're talking about the destiny of the soul. That's what discipleship is. We must deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior and your Lord? You cannot divide Christ up and accept part of him. He is the creator to whom we will give an account. If you've not trusted him as your Lord, you have never trusted him as your Savior. And you cannot be a godly leader in the home or in the church if he does not know you. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nehemiah was a godly leader because he, like other Old Testament saints, 
knew the God of Israel. He was not trusting his own righteousness. Nehemiah had God's righteousness. It had been credited to his spiritual account. Has the righteousness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, been credited to your account? If you're not trusting him as Savior and Lord, it has not, based on the authority of the word of the living God. Let's pray.